Hello, my name is Eric Torn, and I am the Associate Chair for Research and Faculty Development for the Department of Computer Science and Engineering, CSE, at Michigan State University. CSE is launching a new series of interviews called CSE Spotlight, where we go behind the scenes to get more insight into some of the notable happenings and people within the department. Today, I'm talking with one of our newest faculty members, Dr. Emily Dolson. Emily is not new to MSU. She is a former graduate student in CSC and graduated last year with a dual major doctoral degree in computer science and ecology, evolutionary biology, and behavior. As a graduate student, Emily received an MSU University Distinguished Fellowship and a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. For the past year, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Cleveland Clinic working with Dr. Jacob Scott. Emily, first, thanks for agreeing to sit down with me for this interview today. Would you please tell us about your background, such as where you did your undergrad, what you did during your graduate studies here at MSU, and then what you did for your postdoc at the Cleveland Clinic? Yeah. Right. So I did my undergrad uh, at Swarthmore College, uh, and I double majored there in computer science and biology, kind of like I have all throughout my education. Yeah, and then I came to MSU because I was really looking for a place where I could study both of those at the same time and feel like I was really furthering my training on both of them. Um, and MSU has such great interdisciplinary programs uh, for studying evolution, ecology, and computer science that it was really the perfect place. Um, so I continued that throughout my graduate career. Because in my graduate career, I was a little more on the computer science side. My home department was computer science. Uh, I wanted to kind of balance that out for a postdoc. Uh, so for my postdoc, I, as you said, um, went to Cleveland Clinic. Uh, and so there I was in kind of a, a mixture between a wet lab and a more theoretical lab. Um, the name of the lab I was in is the theory division. Um, so we very much had like a theoretical perspective, uh, but there was a wet lab as well. Um, and so the motivation of research in that lab is very much uh, to understand evolutionary theory so that we can apply it uh, for really practical goals of stopping cancer from evolving uh, evolution or from evolving resistance to um, drugs and other treatments like radiation therapy. Um, and this is a big problem in cancer, just like it is in bacteria with antibiotic resistance. Um, and it's really the same principles that um, we would be using if we wanted to control evolution in any system. Um, and so uh, the work I was doing in my PhD was kind of about controlling evolution and computational systems, um, especially evolution and computation, where we're using evolution as a machine learning algorithm. Um, so in some ways in my postdoc, I was working on the opposite problem of the one that I was solving in grad school. Um, and so now I'm excited to kind of bring those two halves back together. Wow, that's, that, that's really interesting. Um, let, me, let me follow that up by asking, uh, what attracted you to coming back to MSU as a faculty member? Great question. Yeah, so I think for all the same reasons that MSU was a really great fit uh, for grad school, it's a really great fit for being a faculty member here. Uh, it's got a really strong set of interdisciplinary programs, um, which are hard to find in a lot of places. Um, it's got the Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action, which is kind of the ideal place to do the research that I'm interested in. Um, it's got one of the only universities that has this much strength in evolutionary computation research. Um, and since that's one of the systems that I want to keep studying evolution in, uh, that's a really strong resource. Um, so really, it's got like good collaborators across all of the disciplines I want to be in. 
Um, also, you know, it's hard for dual academic career couples to find departments where they can both have jobs and MSU was able to make that work for my partner and I. Uh, so that's definitely also a big benefit. Well, that, that's great. You know, we're, we're really excited to have you here and, and Josh in the department. You both really add a lot to it. So uh, very excited that you're here. Um, you sort of got into this a, a little bit, but uh, can you talk about what your research focus is going to be here at MSU as a faculty member? Yeah. So the kind of central question that I'm really hoping to answer over the course of my career is how can we control evolution in complex ecological communities? Uh, and so this is kind of a problem that transcends a lot of different situations. So the stuff I was dealing with in my postdoc with cancer is absolutely an example of that. Uh, you know, the cells in a tumor uh, are often, you know, they're not homogenous. They have different phenotypes. Uh, and as a result, you get an ecological community where uh, different cells are kind of playing different roles. And if you want to control the evolution of that system as a whole, you need to understand its ecology. Uh, but this problem doesn't just exist in cancer. Uh, it exists, obviously, in bacteria, um, where we have basically the same resistance problem. Um, but it exists in, for instance, the gut microbiome, where we might want um, to steer the ecological community there to be maybe robust to outside invaders that might be more harmful to us as humans. Um, it's also the problem that we have in evolutionary computation, um, because you know, in evolutionary computation, kind of the central thing that we're trying to avoid is losing population diversity, because when that happens, uh, we can kind of fail to find interesting solutions to a problem that are different from the ones that are easy to find. Um, and so again, we have an ecosystem basically, because we're trying to maintain diversity and we need to be able to control the trajectory that evolution takes in that ecosystem so that we can get to the best solution possible. Uh, and I mean, in the long run, I hope to scale this up to larger ecosystems as well, um, you know, terrestrial ecosystems that are facing issues from climate change, um, but that's a ways off. I, I want to work out the theory in the more tractable systems first uh, before we can consider those applications. Well, that, that's, that's, really, that's really neat. Um, if I can just touch on one of the things you mentioned in there, um, I, and I had not thought about it this way at all. Uh, so when you're saying there's... Uh, like, uh, you know, when we have liver cancer or some, some type of cancer, it's not just one type of cancer cell. We're, we're dealing with uh, the, the cancer is actually a, a, an ecosystem of different types of cells which are working in concert to cause us problems. It is, yeah. Uh, it is often a simpler ecosystem than we might have uh, in a bacterial community, for instance. But uh, a lot of the research that the lab I was in for my postdoc does is on game theory of different cells interacting in a tumor and how some of them will supply public good to the others that will allow them to be resistant to drugs, for instance. Wow, that's the, I, I guess, I, I guess I've never really read about cancer and how it works. I, I just kind of assumed we had cancer cells, but that they were all kind of uniform. So that, that's, that's a really interesting uh, phenomenon. And I guess your background in having looked at the evolution of populations makes you really well suited to attack this problem. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that's really, uh, that, that's very neat. Um, so I, th I think you had mentioned before you recently had a paper come out from your work as a postdoc. Uh, can you talk more about that? 
Yeah, um, so this is one of the more theoretical papers that I was working on. Uh, so in my postdoc, I was doing purely like computational theoretical work because I am a computational scientist, not a wet lab scientist. Um, but so this one was pure theory. Uh, so, okay, basically, you know, we have this ultimate goal of being able to steer evolution. Uh, and when we're thinking about steering evolution in a medical context, uh, be it a tumor or a population of bacteria, uh, usually the way that we're thinking about doing this is applying a sequence of drugs uh, to kind of push the population around um, the you know, fitness landscape, so the, the landscape of mappings from genotypes to fitnesses, uh, such that it ends up in a part of the fitness landscape where we can actually control it or ideally wipe it out. Um, and so this works basically because evolving resistance to some drugs will, in a predictable and repeatable way, confer sensitivity to other drugs. Uh, we call this collateral sensitivity. Um, and it's still an area of active research. It is by no means a solved problem, but there's potential there to be able to steer uh, population evolution through a sequence of drugs like that. Uh, the problem with that is uh, all of the theory that we've developed so far works uh, as time goes to infinity. Right. Um, so that's obviously bad if we're trying to treat patients. Um, so the innovation that this paper that just came out in Nature Physics uh, has is it's basically a way to control the speed uh, really precisely uh, with which the population moves through this fitness landscape. Wow. That's uh, so. So, like, what kind of timescales are you talking about then? Technically, like according to the theory, uh, we can do it arbitrarily fast. Uh, obviously, in practice, we can't just like you know instantly like snap the population from one position to another. Uh, the way the technique we propose in the paper works is it actually borrows this uh, kind of new technique from quantum mechanics, um, and basically it works by. Shoot, I, I'm not going to have time to explain this entire thing. It's a little complicated, but. Um, <laughs> Okay, what's the right level of detail? Um, yeah, so basically um, what this technique allows us to do is it allows us to apply a sequence of drugs uh, that will approximate what it would have been like if we had applied a different sequence of drugs, but the population had instantly reached equilibrium for each of those intermediate steps. Okay. All right, so you, you, you can approximate what would have happened there if you're shooting for a specific point along the spectrum. Is, is that a reasonable? Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically okay. for any uh, given drug that you give the population, there will be some equilibrium distribution of genotypes that it will have, um, right. but it will take a really long time to reach that equilibrium. And so we figured out how to calculate a different sequence of drugs to give it to make it reach that equilibrium not quite instantly, but like relative to evolutionary time close to instantly. Right. So, so from a medical perspective, like, uh, you know, as you said before, we, we don't have our patients are waiting and hoping to get something, uh, you know, yesterday, uh, is this sort of, are we talking about like months, years in terms of how, how quickly you can hopefully reach, uh, Get, get the environment to reach whatever you're shooting Good for? question. So it's always going to depend on the time scale that the population evolves on. 
Um, so for bacteria, it could be very fast potentially because um, they have a pretty short generation time um, you know, within hours. The practical time that it would take the population of bacteria to get to the place that you want it to is probably going to be more than hours, but it could be days or weeks. Um, cancer is potentially okay. going to be a little bit longer because cancer cells have a longer generation time. But yeah, it should probably for cancer, my guess would be it would be in the weeks to months range, uh, depending on like how long a sequence okay. of drugs you need to apply to get it to the right point in the fitness landscape. That's fascinating. I mean, that uh, I guess, again, being a very naive, non-medical person, um, I, I hadn't thought about this idea that you you provide drugs, not that they are going to work themselves, but that they're going to create an environment where eventually this, the fifth drug is going to be effective in treating the, the, the cancer. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that, that's, that's really fascinating stuff. So, um, well, thank you. Um, okay. So, you know, you, you talked about trying to be a balance between the, uh, the, the computational side and the wet lab, uh, you know, and this paper was definitely more on the theoretical side. Um, did you have a chance to do some wet lab work while you were at Cleveland Clinic? Uh, yeah, so I didn't like personally touch the wet lab stuff, um, but I had the opportunity to do some projects where I was collaborating really directly with wet lab people. Um, so the big one, um, that's kind of the main thing I was working on for most of my postdoc, is this uh, model that's paired directly with the wet lab experiment. Uh, so in cancer, we know that having regions uh, where there's very low oxygen uh, near a tumor tends to lead to bad outcomes. Um, we're still kind of figuring out why that is. Um, there's a few possibilities. Some of them are evolutionary mechanisms. Some of them are more physiological. But so we wanted to kind of understand what the role uh, for the evolutionary mechanisms there is. We've got this really cool wet lab system um, that basically creates a gradient of oxygen and so we put a bunch of cancer cells in that wet lab system. And the ultimate plan, uh, which got a little disrupted by the pandemic, is to let them evolve in that system for a few months and kind of do, we've been calling it the long-term cancer evolution experiment. It's nothing compared to the long-term evolution experiment here at Michigan State that Rich Lensky has been doing, but it's right, uh, right. longer than most cancer evolution experiments. Uh, and the goal would be to be able to watch uh, what the effect of the different oxygen levels on that evolutionary trajectory is. Um, and so then I can compare the results of that to the model that I've been working on and uh, hopefully use that to figure out kind of what the primary mechanisms by which hypoxia promotes the evolution of resistance to therapy is. Wow, that's, that's, that's really neat. That, that's uh, fascinating stuff that you're working on. Um... Yeah, so I guess as as you sort of said there, you you had some delay uh, that was caused by the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, yeah, how how has that been like? You know, I, I imagine that was very frustrating for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate because like my work is computational, so I could keep doing um, pretty much all the same things that I was doing, uh, except for the fact that the wet lab data that this project depends on, uh, we had to put on pause. Um, there was a long period of time where we couldn't start new projects, especially not new, very long projects. Now the lab is starting to open back up. You know, being at a hospital, it kind of like, I think they opened it up faster because the rest of the hospital was open. Um, and also uh, I think part of that might be because we were working on some pandemic related research as well. Um, being in a hospital, I think we were all kind of really aware of the um, PPE shortage um, and really concerned about it. 
um, and we happened to have access in the lab to a range of expertise necessary to study kind of some decontamination approaches to PPE. Uh, so we kind of took a lab detour for a couple months in March and April to study ultraviolet decontamination, uh, which is not something any of us expected to be working on, um, but it was definitely really rewarding. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you, uh, in addition to the rest of your lab, all participated in that work? Pretty much. Yeah. It was a pretty big team effort. I think a lot of us were having trouble focusing on other research at the time. Um, and so it was a good outlet, uh, yeah. without like accidentally wading into being armchair epidemiologists when we weren't qualified. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, so, so did you actually get some results out of that? And, uh, has that changed at least, uh, I, I guess, you know, we often measure output in terms of publications, but I guess, did that change practice in terms of what the hospital doing was doing and what other hospitals might be doing? Good question. Uh, so it definitely didn't change what Cleveland Clinic is doing, um, cause Cleveland Clinic is a very large hospital. And so, uh, there are kind of good techniques at scale for decontaminating PPE that it's able to use. Um, the situation we were more worried about was the case of small hospitals where uh, kind of these giant container trucks full of vaporized hydrogen peroxide that they've been using um, just aren't going to be practical if you've got a small rural hospital where there aren't that many masks per day. Um, and so, yeah, we actually um, just submitted the paper on this. Um, we developed uh, this like little device that's like kind of the size of a microwave, it, like can sit on a table um, that will just blast a mask with a high dose of UVC radiation. Um, and according to our tests, it achieves decent decontamination within about a minute. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, I, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, you know, during this pandemic have been, would love to be able to do something to help out. And that, that's really fantastic that you were able to do that. Um, have you heard of, you know, I, I, I guess it's, almost impossible to know, but um, do you know if any hospitals or, or, or any clinics or anybody is using your technique? Uh, we don't. Uh, it's still pretty new. Uh, like we just released the plans recently. So I don't know how many places would have had time to like build the device and then put it into practice. Right, right. But we were definitely talking to a lot of people as we developed it that seemed interested. Um, so possibly. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things, you know, somebody might use it and you, you, exactly. you have no idea unless they actually tell you <laughs> we're using it. But that, wow, that, that's, that's really, uh, that's great work. And uh, uh, well, uh, changing gears a little bit, um, you know, you're coming back to MSU as a faculty member. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your teaching style and what students in your classes might expect? Yeah, um, so my teaching style is very much uh, based on hands-on activities and kind of interactivity. Uh, I feel like if I'm just lecturing, I don't have a good barometer for whether my students are actually understanding anything that I'm saying. Um, so I like to intersperse what I'm doing with a lot of opportunities for feedback um, and a lot of like kind of short in class problems for people to work on. Uh, you know, I definitely had the experience, I'm sure we all have of someone explaining something and it making perfect sense. And then they walk away and you try to do it and you realize it doesn't make sense. And so I want my students to have that experience while I'm there to help them make it make sense again, uh, rather than struggling on their own. No, that's great. That's great. Uh, I, I think your students are really going to appreciate that approach. Um, well, uh, th this has really been fascinating. I, I've learned a lot uh, that I did not know before, and I hope our listeners have too. Um, 
as we approach the end of this interview, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you like to do when you are not working as a faculty member? Sure, yeah. I think one of my favorite things to do is play board games, uh, which is a little harder with the pandemic. Uh, I've been playing some online board games. Um, you know, I also have some pet ferrets that I like to take on walks and so on. Um, uh, sometimes I play uh, Canadian folk music on the tin whistle. Uh, those are my main hobbies. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that's great. Um, yeah, well, I think I've seen those ferrets in some videos. I, I, I think they were in one of the videos Josh shot for graduation. Yeah, that sounds right. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, again, thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I realize things are extremely busy as we prepare for a most unusual fall semester. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, to thank join you. Me. Well, in closing, uh, thanks to you, our audience, for listening to this latest segment of CSC Spotlight. I hope you enjoyed it, and we will be back soon with more interviews.